Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Soon Yu, co-author of Friction, adding value by making people work for it. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Soon Yu to talk about the book he's co-authored with Dave Burr's Friction, Adding Value by Making People Work for It, published by Zen Karma Media. Soon Yu is an international speaker and best-selling author on innovation and design and branding who has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Entrepreneur. His previous book, Iconic Advantage, featured on episode 161 of the Marketing Book Podcast, won a gold medal award from Axiom Business. You most recently served as Global Vice President of Innovation at VF Corporation, parent organization to over 30 global apparel companies like the North Face, Vans, Timberland, Nautica, and Wrangler. Prior to that, he worked for Bain & Company, the Clorox Company, and Chiquita Brands. I'm Chiquita Banana and I'm here to say I am the top banana in the world today. And he was also founder and CEO for numerous venture-backed startups. He frequently guest lectures at Stanford University. Go Cardinal, where he received his MBA and was a former adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design. And interesting fact, he was once the lead singer in an Asian funk band. Soon, congratulations on friction, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. I needed like two minutes to catch my breath from laughing so hard. <laughs> These audio cues that you picked up, so iconic, you know, so signature to whatever the genre you were trying to communicate. And I don't know for your listeners, but that was probably the most sensorial introduction I've ever been given. So thank you very much. Uh, I was... Uh, 
uh, doing a little bit of samba as you did the Chiquita. <laughs> and, and then I was thinking about, oh, the, you know, uh, touchdowns and football passes and that the, the, the ugly green tree that is the Stanford. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and so, boy. And I was just wondering, is there no uh, uh, auditory cues for Parsons? I couldn't think of any either. So I think, wow. Anyway. Well, I, I, I wanted to cut them some slack, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you were in this Asian funk band. I, 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 you had, what was it, a, a horn section and you had go-go dancers. Tell, tell us about that production. Yeah. You know, it's one of those situations. It was uh, beyond a midlife crisis. I was 39 at the time. And- uh-huh. I was thinking to myself, well, okay, I'm still single, believe it. I was still single at the time. And I'm like, I'm having no luck meeting anybody. So why don't I try to do something that's sort of outside my comfort zone? And I always wanted to be in a band. There were a lot of other so-called, I don't know, there there was a punk band. Uh, There was a cover tunes band. But there was no Asian funk bands. And I thought, okay, here's a space in the marketplace. There's a marketing lesson for you out there, listeners. It's all about the niche. It is. And it's just like, since no one's fulfilling it, the competitive level that I actually need to be at isn't that high. <laughs> My skills aren't all that good. I can sing maybe an octave and a half range. And so it was perfect. You, you played uh, Casey in the Sunshine Vine. That was about the genre and, and the skill set that was required to be successful as an Asian funk band in the San Francisco area. So that's what happened. We started the funk band, started off with maybe five people, realized, you know, with, for funk music, you need a whole horn section. You need a trombone, a sax, a trumpet player. Um, y- y- you need some flash. And so I had two of my best girlfriends join us. Uh, and, you know, they put on the go-go outfits. And th- they were great because they distracted from my bad singing. So we had a nine – actually, at one point, it was a 10-person band. And that that's – think of Earth, Wind & Fire when they're in a concert – uh, just think of an Asian version that's less, uh, let's say, less fidelity in terms of quality. <laughs> right. And so you then met your wife and she said, I'll marry you, but you've got to give up that funk band. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I There was another reason. I pulled my back playing basketball and then at uh, 41, I had to retire from jumping off stages and, you know, all that type of crazy stuff. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, so then, you know, somehow that all led me to write a book at some point in my life, right? So I know. It all sort of fits, you know, you can just see that arc, right? <laughs> That's right. That career arc. Yes. You, well, you've been very, very busy. And I do have to mention one additional interesting fact about Soon You. And the, we could just spend the whole time talking about, you know, Soon You, this is your life. But, you know, as marketing has gone from madmen to mathmen, as they say, Soon You is yet another engineer who has made his way to marketing. His undergraduate degree was in electrical engineering, right? Yeah, basically goes to show that anyone can be a marketer. You don't have to have any <laughs> skills to begin with. So both that's encouraging, but that's also deflating. <laughs> I have interviewed a, what's to me a surprising number of marketing and sales book authors who have engineering degrees. You know what? I you know what? I think the 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 I think the connecting point is this: a lot of book authors are out in the world. They're not honestly writing anything original. What oftentimes they're doing is looking at what's happening in the world and doing pattern recognition. And engineers are taught a lot about pattern recognition. And if you can add in the skill of being able to actually both verbally and and in written form communicate that. The, you know what you're learning in those patterns, then, then you can be an author. <laughs> well, okay, true. But I would add two other things. One is they're from a different discipline, so they're able to look at it perhaps more objectively. But also, and I'm not joking about this, they understand systems. 
And I think that's really important in sales. It's obviously very important in marketing. And it just seems to come more naturally to them, I think, than somebody who hadn't had that kind of training. No, I think that's a fair, fair, fair point. I think I think the, the the best thing to think about it is, you know, the the idea that past behavior is a good predictor of future behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times what we're doing as authors is looking at what actually creates those behaviors, and then if we understand what creates them, then we can probably create the conditions to replicate them. And and that's what engineers do. Well, and they also understand how to reverse engineer something. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what you, you just summed up what I said in a much more succinct way. Thank you. <laughs> well, now, I should also say that for some odd reason, there are more authors on the Marketing Book Podcast over the years with Stanford degrees than from any other school. And I don't- I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know why. And some of them have joked that it's on the application now. You know, or will you write a marketing or sales book? So, you know, <laughs> I can only imagine uh, NFL people like Andrew Luck and Richard Sherman are working on their marketing or sales books right now. So henceforth, soon, whenever I mentioned that, that somebody went to Stanford, I'm going to be playing that Stanford fight song. So it's all starting with soon you, okay? They have you to thank for that. Yeah, you got to think about that green, ugly tree, okay? Every time you hear that song, green, ugly tree, there it okay. is. People with Stanford degrees can say that. Everyone else needs to be uh, careful because those are probably fighting words. So you were on episode 161 of the Marketing Book Podcast back in February of 2018, and this interview should be episode 404. Whoa. So for you and all the engineers out there playing the home game, uh, that means that every 243 episodes, soon you will be making an appearance on the Marketing Book Podcast. Therefore, soon, I'm holding open episode 647 for you, which will be, listener, mark your calendars, June 4th, 2027. So, <laughs> I was guessing 2027, so you got it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so thank you. You've just added to my life goals there. So I guess I'm going to have to keep doing this now for a few more years, but it's really my, uh, my, my pleasure. And one other soon you story. We will get to your book, but first we just have to talk more about you. So every Friday since January of 2015, I've published a, a new episode. And, and an email goes out to the guest early in the morning, letting him know that the episode's been published and there's a, you know, there's a, here's the link and so forth. And most all of them respond to the email and they say something like, thanks, or you're an idiot, or, you know, is English your first language? But there's some kind of feedback. In other words, I know they got the email, but surprisingly, some authors just never respond. <laughs> they completely ghost me. And, you know, not many, but it's just like it's noticeable. But that is never a problem because it is balanced out by soon you. Because when I interviewed you in 2018, you left a very nice recommendation for me on LinkedIn. And no other author had ever done that. And I just, I really appreciate it. And I, I always remember that. And now three other authors have since followed your lead. Not that I'm <clears throat> keeping track. <laughs> Tim Ash, Daryl Amy, and John Asperian. <laughs> oh, this is a this is the vendetta episode. Yeah. <laughs> all the rest of you are dead to me. No, I'm kidding. I love all these ge- all the guests on the marketing podcast are so generous. And part of it's because they're authors. I mean, they're spilling their guts. They're putting their marriages and careers at risk to write these books. So, but I, but anyway, I, I really do uh, always remember that. You, so you've 
I, I really, I, I do appreciate that. So, you and Dave Burrs write the most interesting books, and I hope you. I don't have to wait another two hundred forty-three episodes to interview you again. And I understand Dave also designed the cover for the book. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Dave. Dave came up with the idea of um, two things. You know. What what is the uh, sub substrate out there that would communicate the idea of friction? And then we decided to put a pretty blue bow around it that would indicate the idea that it's a gift from Tiffany's. <laughs> but it looks the cover looks like it's on sandpaper. That's yeah, exactly right. It's right. sandpaper. That is the substrate I was talking about. Exactly right. So every week before I interview an author, I post a picture of their book and you know let everybody know what's coming and. Frankly, I do it to try to get the author's attention to remind them <laughs> there's a, an interview coming. But uh, the, the reaction to the cover of the book was really something. And Dave was really weighing in there. And I thought, wow, that's really helpful, Dave, to tell us how you did that. And then I looked, at the, looked in the book more closely and saw that he had uh, designed it. So well, well played, uh, Dave. Now, he's in London. Is that right? That's right. We got to know each other on the first book. Uh, he was more of a case writer, and I thought, my God, this guy's contributing a lot more than I'm providing. <laughs> and so I said, I'll, for the next book, we have to write this together, and that's that's how we combined for this one. Okay. And he was also in a band when he was younger, so clearly that was the criterion. Oh, well, you should listen to his harmonica. He plays a hard harmonica. Oh, oh. Next time you have him as a guest, have him do a riff for 30 seconds. Your listeners will love it. Oh, excellent. And I have watched some videos of him, and he's Scottish originally, isn't he? He is very Scottish with that Scottish wit. <laughs> yes. So I've only interviewed one author from Scotland, and it was quite a celebration of, of all things uh, Scottish, almost to the point where the author was like, yeah, Douglas, um, we've established I'm Scottish. Can we move on and talk about my, <laughs> my book? There were a lot of fat bastard sound effects, you know. I'm rich and I'm dead sexy. <laughs> well, that sounds like a very Scottish statement, like, you know, getting right to the heart of it and all right. that sardonic wit. I love it. It's great, man. Like I said, this is episode 404, and this is the second book on the show with the title Friction. So episode 237 was Friction, the Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage by Roger Dooley. And I'll include a link to that interview on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And so when I first got the book, I thought, well, I've already had a book about friction. And then I read the first couple of pages and said, whoa, <laughs> whoa, no, very different, very different. So I'm so, uh, so glad that you all sent it to me and I got a chance to read it. I want to quote from uh, page six and then uh, get into it. Over the last couple of decades, there's been an increasing focus on making experiences frictionless. You're bound to have noticed the impact of this approach in your own life. Maybe you pay for coffee by tapping the smartphone in your hand instead of rummaging around for the wallet in your bag. Or perhaps you've noticed that you no longer need to hit a next page button as you endlessly scroll through a social media news feed. If you find yourself expending less effort, tapping fewer buttons, or applying less conscious thought, you're seeing the frictionless philosophy in action. It's been spread by the rise of design methodologies. It's been fueled by the development of the user experience and customer experience industries. And it's been turned into a cult by the mantras of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. 
Now it's seen as a fundamental approach for every area of business. The principle in itself sounds sensible enough. It's simply about removing all the unnecessary layers between the user and the desired interaction. And on the whole, that's not a bad thing. It's helped to eliminate some real niggles and inconveniences, which means we can all spend less time swearing at technology. However, sensible as it sounds, there's some critical yin to the yang of frictionlessness. Slavishly following this simple directive is leading us to eliminate some crucial elements, and that's causing us to miss out on some fantastic benefits. It's time for us to question this wholesale elimination of everything frictional, because not all friction is bad. In this book, we'll encourage you to embrace a dose of good friction. So soon, not all friction is created equal. Explain what the difference is between good friction and bad friction, particularly as it relates to outcomes. (laughs) So we do have a very simple definition of what friction is. It's added energy, effort, time, consideration um, from your day. Um, And the only difference between it being good or bad is that this added effort, time, energy, consideration either leads to a bad outcome, and that's bad friction, or quite frankly, sometimes that actually leads to a good outcome, and that's good friction. So we spend the majority of the book actually helping people understand the distinction between the two and then giving them sort of simple tactics, principles, and strategies on actually how to make sure you don't throw the baby out with the – or the baby out with the bathwater, right, right? Yes. You, you, you all use that expression. <laughs> of, that's right. And, and not – yes, eliminate the bad friction. Get rid of the things that annoy you, that create inconveniences, that frustrate you, that create uncertainty or risk. You definitely want to get rid of those. Once you've had a, a done that and created a sort of a clearing, a, a blank canvas, then you want to make sure you add in all the good friction, stuff that creates excitement, engagement, um, meaning, belonging, rapport. We talk about all, all these incredible virtues of having some really good energy, effort, and investment made by you. One more marketing book out there that's basically saying it's not that simple, people. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But I had been one of those two that said reduce friction. And and that's not – you all are very clear that it's not a bad thing to do. In fact, it brings to mind a book that's been mentioned on the show, that's been on the show by Nicholas Webb called What Customers Hate. (laughs) And he says, stop trying to please customers first. First, figure out what they hate. And the same way with you all, you're saying – yeah, definitely remove bad friction. And there's a lot of bad friction to remove. So not to take anything away from the people that write books about that, like uh, Roger Dooley, which is an excellent book. But there are there is good friction that uh, can help you. And it reminded me of rather than putting on the brakes as the car is going down a mountain, you can actually downshift <laughs> and, and put the uh, compression, the engine to work for you instead of the brakes. And you didn't talk about that in the book, but it, it came to mind when this knucklehead was was reading it. Uh, by the way, your, your analogy is absolutely right. In fact, that's how electric cars actually generate energy. They use um, the slowing down of the car to that the friction that's created by the slowing down of the car to actually uh, as a generator. Oh, that's right. And uh, need I remind you, listeners, that he has a degree in electrical engineering. So. <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right, good stuff, good stuff. 
TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Now, I want to talk about drugs, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, just by saying that, I know I've gotten the attention of a small segment of the Marketing Book Podcast audience. Now, it it could be a small group, but I have reason to believe that there is a small number of listeners who smoke weed every day. Now, the reason I say that is because not too long ago, I interviewed Stu Hynek about his book, How to Grow Your Business Like a Weed. And as I thought, and even predicted during the interview, I said, I have a feeling there's going to be just a phenomenal amount of downloads of this episode because people are going to think it's about uh, marijuana uh, or, or the CBD business or something like that. So we, it's not at all about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk <laughs> about the drugs that are in your brain that you can use friction to release. So the, the brain chemicals. And I've heard of all of these. I, I mean, I've read about them. I had a sense for what they were. Honestly, I had a couple of them misunderstood. But I wanted to briefly talk about them because what's outlined in your book, you actually kind of like the downshifting. You're able to release a lot of these drugs by using friction well. And I, I let me just, it's uh, adrenaline, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins, which spells out a dose. See what they did there? A dose of good friction. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So just remind folks for, you know, people who might be confusing one with the other, what, you know, what these different ones are, adrenaline, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. Sure. So one of the key learnings that we had is that these are the happy chemicals that uh, keep you energized, keep you engaged, uh, they keep you, you know, spry. And let's just start off with adrenaline. Adrenaline is a is a happy chemical that's really generated when there's excitement, when there is anticipation, when there is risk. And the idea that something may actually go wrong or that there's more at risk. And oftentimes, if you become seamless or frictionless and you take away all the risk, uh, all the excitement, um, it pretty much gets neutered. And so you need uh, friction to create adrenaline. Same thing with dopamine. Very similar to adrenaline in that dopamine is, call it the anticipation chemical or drug. It is the one that you, know, that you get when 
you know that you posted something online and you, you look to see whether or not you're going to get those likes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And the, the dopamine's kicking in and you get one like, two likes. Oh, am I getting up to the 100? Am I going to break my record in terms of likes here? You know, and that's dopamine. It is both the anticipation and it's also the corresponding reward mm-hmm. of actually waiting. So it's the wait and the reward. And that, that happens with dopamine. And, they, and then, is, there, is that where a certain randomness actually makes it even more so? Not only randomness, but this idea that you are not guaranteed yes. an outcome, okay? Uh-huh. And so the idea of being like, you know, exclusive, something's very exclusive and you want it and you know you can't get it, that only increases the dopamine of that exclusive <laughs> item, right? Um, you know, something where, let's say, it spends hours and hours of your time uh, to prepare for a potential test, a potential milestone, and you're not sure you're going to get win that business, or you're not sure you're going to, you know, score as high as you'd like on whatever it is that you're you're, you're testing for. Well, that all creates dopamine because you have invested so much, and you're not guaranteed the outcome for that. And both of those situations require good friction to create that dopamine. The next one is oxytocin. Think of that as sort of the love drug. It is the one that actually, you know, babies and moms generate immediately upon touch. It often happens when you are in connection with people. It's the connection drug. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, by the world being so, I don't know, frictionless in terms of, hey, we don't need to get out of our cars anymore, you know, to get our Starbucks, right? We can just go through the drive throughs now, you know, and hey, we got Zoom and all that. It, without that social interaction, without that ability, both, you know, being in the same room, and oftentimes just human touch, you're going to miss a lot of that oxytocin. And, and a lot of that's released when I'm hugging my dog and Absolutely. You know, the that UPS means, and Amazon delivery men. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they, they are an incredible source of oxytocin. <laughs> that and dopamine. It's like uh, back in the days, they, they didn't have Amazon. They had the Wells Fargo wagon, remember? And <laughs> people were like, literally have to wait a month for the wagon to show up. And the days before the wagon show up, people would talk about it. It'd be a town event. People would wait outside of their homes waiting for the wagon to come and, and, and seeing what type of gifts they got from Sears, Roebuck and Company <laughs> right. or Montgomery Wards. Remember those, remember those old ancient companies, right? Yeah. Anyway, that was all, you know, the high increasing of dopamine. And like I said, oxytocin is just the being uh, around people. Serotonin is a very interesting one. It is the... Um, recognition drug. It happens when you know you're competitive with somebody else, and it really brings out your competition to one-upmanship. This idea of you know performing better than you did last time, or performing better than the competition, and getting the recognition for that. That recognition creates serotonin. And soon, last- I'm I'm not going to say definitively, but compared to your last interview, you're really doing well here. So <laughs> my serotonin just shot way up. I'm on a serotonin high right now. And, that, and episode 161 was really good too. So, <laughs> oh man, uh, okay. Uh, if you were there, I'd give you a, d- a dose of oxytocin, buddy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, last one is endorphins. Endorphins. Think of it as the painkiller drug. It's the one that kicks in. It's a runner's high, right? You're on uh, mile 25 of your 26 mile marathon. It's what kind of gets you through the pain threshold. And again. You phys- can't get physical pain. Yes, you can't get to mile 25 unless you put in a little bit of friction in terms of running, right? Mm-hmm. So all of these ideas of these happy chemicals, when we looked at it, we realized you can't create them by becoming 
frictionless and seamless and forgettable. It actually has to be a situation where people are required to put in effort and investment where there is not a guaranteed either payout or the payout is something where it's, it's, there was a lot of energy and effort that was painful, but it's leading to something. So that's how we kind of came to the conclusion that good friction is actually required to create happy chemicals. Yes. And for all the MBAs out there, there is a grid at the end of the book, which uh, <laughs> covers a great big matrix, like the multiplication tables. It's got uh, all of those chemicals. And then on the other axis, it's all of the different tactics to uh, creating good friction, which I want to talk about next. And that's where on page 41, you say, the rest of this book is about the tactics you can use to create good friction in your own experiences. We've included seven different approaches that use the mnemonic embrace, and I'll read them. They are exclusivity, meaning, belonging, rapport, assurance, competence, and engagement. So let's if with your permission, let's 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 walk through embrace, <laughs> and uh, this could take an hour, but no, we won't. Do- <laughs> I'll, I'll make it quick. <laughs> I won't do that to you. I- exclusivity. Talk about how playing hard to get is using good friction. Yeah. So sometimes when things are too easy, when you know that you're assured to. Um, if, if you want to buy this, you know, I can buy it. Well, guess what? Then it becomes commoditized. Mm-hmm. You know, the more something is both easy to get, the cheaper it becomes, um, the less value that people place on it. It's, it's human nature. We're not always, uh, anyways, we're not always rational, but we're very predictable in our <laughs> irrationality. Okay. Yes. And part of that irrationality is sometimes. When things are hard to get and you make people play hard, they, they'll just want it even more. Um, you know, a good example in the book we talk about is um, the number one most sought-after um, handbag in the world. It's the Hermes Birkin bag. And, you know, you have people like the Kardashians who basically chronicle – their journey to get a Birkin bag. And, you know, these are billionaires. Like, it's not about how much money you have. It's about who you know, how much you've spent at the store and created a relationship with the, the salesperson and, you know, what, you know, at what way you curried favor. It's kind of like trying to win your, your place in line at a, at a very popular uh, dance club, right? <laughs> you want to get to the front of the line. Oh, I know the bouncer. I know the security people. Okay. Well, you know, and I've, I've spent a lot of energy buying them drinks. So next time I show up, okay, my wait is five minutes versus an hour for everybody else. Same thing happens with the Birkin bag and the same idea with the, um, you know, the, the, the call, the queue in the, uh, the club is the same thing for the queue for the bag. The more you make it harder for people, the more they actually want it. Like (laughs) Nike, when they, they launch their shoe collections, these are specialized, very rare items. They don't make it easy for people to buy. And in fact, they've elevated their game in terms of how making it harder. It used to be they'd only have a few and then, you know, they'd give it to a couple stores. You kind of knew what those stores were and people would line up for it and that was enough, right? And then those people, honestly, it's the people that purchased it and then resold it on eBay. They were just, you know, people that are resellers that were willing to wait the two, two days in line and sleep and camp out in their tents, whatnot. Well, they said, no, we want to be able to sell this to real fanatics, not just people who are going to go back on eBay and sell it. So, 
first off, you have to be like active in the fan lore and be reading the web, okay, and, and, and basically looking at all the fan sites because someone's going to put a little white rabbit out there that you won't know about, but it's a hint. It's a hint that you have to go, a clue that you have to go and investigate. And then what you discover by, by, by your investigation is that at a certain point in time, depending on where you live in the world, whether it be, you know, Brazil or in London or in New York, there's going to be a public space where you need to take your iPhone, download the Nike app, go to their virtual reality thing, uh, you know, their virtual reality sort of, uh, uh, what is it, the, the feature, and then point it in the sky and hope to God you point it in the right way, in the right location, the right public square to get a floating number in space. Okay, and you get that number, then you type it into a very specialized website that not everyone, they don't advertise. You put it in there to get another piece of information to then go to another place to then be able to sign up to get in the queue to buy the product. So they make it so hard, but they only do it because they want to do it for the real fanatics out there. Right, right. (laughs) It's what all, talk about you really have to be one of the cool kids. Absolutely. Yes. And, and and being a cool kid, you know, just like going into a fraternity or sorority, not that I have ever joined one because I wasn't cool enough, right? But when I saw the cool kids join, it wasn't that easy. You know, they had to go through a lot of hoops and hurdles and hazing in order to both, you know, earn the trust of their fellow brothers or sisters, right? But also it's this idea that, you know, um, it, it, it demonstrated how much they wanted to belong to that group. Right. And you could actually have a commodity product. They don't have to be Birkin bags or high-end Nikes. There are certain things you can do to enhance the perceived exclusivity, right? Oh, there's a lot of things you can do. Everything from, you know, uh, certain testimonials to limited collections to um, they're, they're, the, the, the main thing you want to try to do here is make people understand that with every item you're selling, there's some story involved in that item. That both the effort to create it, the idea that you were either hand-chosen or selected or that it was customized for you, even though it might truly not be, that story and the effort involved in the, the, the creation of that story to the moment it got to you and the fact that now you are part of that story, okay, that requires friction but all that friction to create story and include you into that story is what consumers will pay a lot of money for. Because <laughs> everyone wants to be a character in a meaningful story. Yes. And on page 51, I just had to laugh. You write, this is a tactic that – this is one particular tactic uh, related to the cool kids, mm-hmm. fear of missing out. And you go on to write, this is a tactic that many digital services have followed ever since – this is after the popularity of the, the Gmail introduction you're talking about. Becoming a beta user of a new service is similar to saying that you were into Radiohead before they were big. Mm-hmm. It gives exactly. bragging rights in abundance. So, And it also brought to mind that story from Tom Sawyer where he, was, he got in trouble and he had to go paint the fence at their home. <laughs> and he was out there doing it. He hated doing it. And some friends came along and he started acting like he was really enjoying it. And they said, well, Hey, can we, can we join in the fun? And he was like, no, 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 this is, this is too much fun. You can't do it unless, you know, 
you, you pay the price. And they started exactly. bringing, I remember that. they started bringing him like all this cool stuff. He goes, all right, all right. So he sat there and watched them paint while he was collecting all this money from kids who thought, wow, this is really cool. I, I got to pay to do this. So very good. So let's talk about the next one of embrace, which is meaning. You write, uh, the things we value most tend to have involved a fair amount of friction, and it takes friction to create meaning. So meaning is a term that everyone probably has a different meaning for. Tell us what you mean by meaning in this context. Think of it as as simple as significance. And I think in this planet, of all the species, the thing that I think really makes us unique is our ability to create meaning out of nothing. Literally nothing. <laughs> Let me give you a very simple example. I want you to imagine, your listeners imagining this, that I have a pen in my right hand, a pen in my left hand. In my right hand, I have a Mont Blanc pen, a very iconic pen. You know, it has the uh, white star on the very top. And, you know, I was given it to it at graduation. It's probably two or $300 pen here. On this other side, I actually have this ratty tatty big pen. Your normal, typical kind of plastic big pen. It's blue. And it is already 17 years old. And it's pretty much worn. It's scratched up. It doesn't look new at all. And I asked you, which of these pens are more meaningful to me? And you'd probably say, well, you know, or which one's more iconic, meaningful, whatever. You would say more than 99 out of 100 times, probably the Mont Blanc. Well, it's also part of your graduation. It was. But let me tell you the story of this little ratty tat big pen. It's 17 years old. Me and my wife use it once a year to write wedding anniversary cards to each other because it was the pen that the Justice of Peace gave us to sign our marriage certificate Mm. because Mr. Smarty Pants here forgot to bring something (laughs) to sign the marriage certificate with. If I shared that story with you, which of these pens is more meaningful? Oh, definitely the Bic. Right. And guess what? I just made this whole story up, Douglas. That's how we create meaning out of nothing. It's still a nice story. <laughs> it is, isn't it? If it was true. <laughs> I don't care if it's true or not. That's but, part of the story with stories, is that people will believe them even if they're not true. And that's and so for your listeners, that's really important. Story is so important. And the added effort, the added steps, all of that is a story of friction. If I said, look, I just got this pen and, you know, it was very easy and I used it, you know, once, who cares, right? But it's this idea that every single year, we only use it once, we write wedding anniversary cards to each other. It was the one I forgot that then, you know, the Justice Peace saved my butt, you know, by all that, right? That, the drama, all of that is friction. And it's all built into the idea that, one, I was trying to illustrate the point that we can create meaning out of nothing. But two, probably let's reverse engineer this idea. And that is this. We attach great significance to things that required lots of our time, energy, and effort. And the same is true for your customers. If they invest in you and they spend more time with you, it almost becomes irrational while they'll stay loyal to you. Even if there's a better service out there, I've been so loyal to you. And, you know, there were times I stuck with you and then you, 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 you rose to the occasion and, you know, we were, we've been through everything together. Why would I ever abandon you, right? I don't care if there's a new shiny new object brand out there. 
you're my brand because we've been through thick and thin together, okay? Guess what? The stories that you create together with your customers, that's going to create meaning. Those stories require you to actually make your customers consider you more, put in more time and energy, put in more effort. Um, and that's what you need demand of them in the right ways that gives them this idea that they are part of something meaningful. And so, yes, meaning is all of it. I mean, think about the, the simple example we share in the book about if you have somebody that wins the lotto and they win $10 million, the, the likelihood, the, high, the highest probability is that they're going to be bankrupt within years. That is, that is all the statistics show that because all of a sudden you've got all, you're flush with cash and you think, oh, I'm not going to spend it. I'm not going to change my lifestyle. No way. They, everyone changes their lifestyles. A lot of them go into drugs or just you know, gambling or they have built bad practices and habits. Contrast that to you and I, let's say it took us, and we're still on our way there, both of us, right? to earning $10 million in our career, but at the end of our career, we earn $10 million. Well, is that $10 million going to be spent the same way that somebody who won the lottery? <laughs> Hell no! Because <laughs> we know every single meal we missed. We know every single uh, a play that our child was in that we were late to because we were working hard on our career and we made sacrifices. We know all the times where we had to make our families move from one location to another location because we were chasing some career goal. Whatever it is, that 10 million was blood, sweat, and tears and it has so much more significance and meaning because it was wrought through the idea of friction. Yes. And just so you know, I have a 20-year-old Toyota Camry with 200,000 miles on it. Wow. And my wife has like a brand new car, and she's like, why don't you get a new car? Even my son, the paramedic, he said, Dad, even the most unsafe car out there now would be safer than the one you're driving. And I say, no, no, I'm keeping that car because Jay Bear once rode in it. <laughs> That that and how old's your son? If he's twenty years old, maybe there was a No, he's twenty seven. Oh, I was gonna say maybe there was a conception that happened in the car too. <laughs> no, no. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, my my wife and I we got into our late thirties and realized we'd forgotten to have kids. And uh anyway, so he he was a little older and we had a, a very nice apartment in New York City. But enough about me, uh, and the origins of my <laughs> son. So one example you have in the book here is a sales force. Talk about the merit badges they have that, that give meaning to their product. Yeah, I really love Salesforce as a company. Um, I think they are one company that is very purpose-driven. Um, and, and what they do is they have something, I think it's called the, the Trailblazers and their trailheads. And, and part what they do is they actually not only encourage uh, partners to help sell their products, they provide free training, um, free certification, uh, to basically have people who are maybe not part of Salesforce, but part of, let's say, a reseller or part of the ecosystem that's sort of selling Salesforce products, give them an opportunity to better themselves, give them an opportunity to improve their careers. And it's all funded by Salesforce. So they have all these courses you can take. And in the industry, it's recognized that, hey, you are an expert at a design of interfaces or, uh, you know, uh, handshaking of, of protocols, whatever it is that, 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 you know, I'm not an engineer anymore, okay? But whatever <laughs> those titles are for those courses, all of a sudden you say, I'm certified. I took those courses for free on Salesforce, okay? And the entire, whether it be Salesforce or non-sales, Microsoft, IBM, who doesn't matter, people recognize that, okay? 
and they recognize the importance of that and the idea that you, as busy as you are, took time out of your day to get better at something. And it shows your ambition, it shows your dedication, and all the friction you put in is coming to a positive recognition and payout. Yes, and uh, another one that comes to mind that I like is HubSpot. Their HubSpot Academy has all these fantastic courses, not necessarily about their product, and you can put it on the your LinkedIn profile. And you and Dave are both LinkedIn uh, professors, or, or what? What is your? You, you've both done courses for LinkedIn, right? Yeah, Dave, Dave is much more prolific than I am. Uh, yes, we are both LinkedIn instructors. Uh, LinkedIn is also one of those incredible uh, brands that you know uh, is about how do you fulfill the mission of LinkedIn, which is really this idea of you know um, improving and 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 sort of fostering your professional life and career. And one of the things they do is they have this LinkedIn learning uh, portion of it, and you can learn everything in there. Anything about, you know, from cooking to, you know, how to build great brands to how to start a marketing podcast like you and, and, and become a Douglas, you know? So <laughs> it's all there. And, and yes. And, but, but again, that requires, um, friction. And, and what's great is that they're encouraging people to take these classes. They're encouraging people to invest their time and energy and asking more of their customers, of their consumers, um, to get involved in a way that then actually connects those customers and consumers better with the brand itself. Yeah, and it gives them a lot of meaning. I should add that How to Become a Douglas is actually a cautionary tale that LinkedIn has. (laughs) So let's go on to belonging, which is the B of embrace. And you're right, the links people will go to just to be embraced by a group of their peers is extraordinary. <laughs> yes. I mean, we talked I, about I, the I, fraternities and sororities. We've already talked about that, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, you've got to prove your metal, right? <laughs> you talk in the book about gangs and what you have to do to be accepted by a gang. And we're not recommending a life of crime, but yes. it blew my mind. Yes, the Latin American gangs, the ones uh, in Costa Rica – um, is it Costa Rica? Uh, El Salvador. You talk El about Salvador. MS-13. Yeah. 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 El Salvador. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. A lot of them are in Virginia where I live, and they're, they're very nice guys. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, so to belong to the MS-13, just to belong, you go in, just go on Google, type in MS-13, type in images, and you'll see that everyone that's part of the gang not only has – the Japanese Yakuza tattoos on the back, right? That's sort of, that, that's like, that's not, that's not even, that's like patty cakes, okay? That doesn't get mm-hmm. you there, right? It's your entire face is tattooed, okay? And the interesting thing about that is, it's not like, oh, I kind of made a mistake here. I don't want to, I'm going to decide I'm going to quit. How do you quit? You can't get the tattoo off your face. It is there forever, right? Mm-hmm. But that is the rite of passage. And even worse in order to become a captain in MS-13, you have to have a kill. You actually have to kill another person in the rival gangs. So, in order to reach captain status. And those are really, as you say, great lengths to demonstrate the idea that I belong. And that's what's required if you want to be part of this organization. And in fact, the harder they make it, the more people actually want to belong. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, like uh, climbing Mount Everest, which you talk about in the next section. But it's uh, after reading that about MS-13, which is really just very troubling, 
and I'm kidding about them being nice guys, but it made the United States Marine Corps seem like nothing. Or uh, <laughs> these other, you know how proud Marines yeah. are, yeah. or anyone who's gone through something like that. It completely explains it and why people, I had just forgotten how people will go to crazy lengths to belong. And I think that's the section where you talk about how that's that's pretty low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's true. But it's 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 an interesting because it's low, it's actually easy to um elicit in people. Right? Yes. If, they, if you make them feel excluded. So the opposite of this is think of it this way. And I'm not suggesting this, but it's this idea if for some reason you have the fear of being left out or the FOMA or the fear I guess what's fear of being left out? That's another acronym that we're it's, gonna it's related to it, yeah. <laughs> right. Very it's, related, right? It's the fear of just not participating, right? Not being mm-hmm. invited, okay? Whatever it might be, right? And FOMA is actually very similar to that, not being invited to something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that fear of being disenfranchised is so strong that people will go to lengths to belong. Now, on the positive side of this, if you're running a business, you want to recognize people for belonging to something, for putting effort in something. If somebody writes a review, celebrate it. Celebrate the review, showcase it, mm-hmm. give it a certain degree of recognition. Guess, guess what? All of a sudden, I feel not only rewarded, but I've realized that, hey, if I want to get that same high next time, I got to do that and maybe more next time. <laughs> I'm going to write three reviews, right? Now, instead of writing a review for Douglas, I got to go and do a video clip for him and, and, and you know, post it on LinkedIn. And I'm going to do you know, a song and dance and I'm going to do a new, you know, um, music theme just for you because you know I'll do an Asian dance, for, Asian <laughs> funk dan- band dance just for you because I got to up my ante because you recognize me, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and soon you, I mean this in the most Ferris Bueller way, but you are my hero. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. So you talk about the belonging, like you talk about step by step commitments or badges of membership, mm-hmm. not necessarily face tattoos. Uh, creating a shared experience, uh, building a culture like Burning Man <laughs> yeah. in the in the uh, Arizona desert, and it reminds me of a. Of course, everything reminds me of a book that's been on the show over the years. But there was a book by David Merriman Scott called Fanocracy, and it was very much about this this one topic: belonging and how companies are very can some companies are very effective at really amping up this element of belonging and how much people want to belong to a, a movement. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's incredible, this desire to want to belong. And the way you foster it as a business is when people, one, obviously you got to create something that they want to belong to. Then you have to create opportunities for them to actually publicly uh, and through energy effort and, and consideration um, basically belong. And then you have to recognize them for it and celebrate that. And it becomes a very virtuous cycle of actually, I am investing in you as a customer, as a consumer. You are rewarding me through recognition. And then guess what? That recognition, the way it's done, is actually demanding even more of me going forward. (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. So the next one of Embrace is Rapport. And it's interesting, you write that we usually don't think about how we build rapport with someone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I certainly hadn't. How, yep. how is it done? So what's interesting, everyone thinks, oh, rapport, well, you know, I just got to be 
backslapping. Oh yeah, agreeable, amenable, right? I, yeah. I gotta basically, you know, toot your your you know, praise you, toot your horn, all of that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Actually, one of the best ways to get close to somebody isn't to do a favor for them; it's to ask a favor of them. <laughs> So Benjamin Franklin actually did this. He had a rival politician who hated his guts. They were on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. But the one thing that he knew about this rival of his is that they both shared a love of books, and thereby they both had um, incredible book collections. Well, Ben did his research and understood what was the most precious item in his rival's collection. And so Ben wrote him a simple note saying, I understand you have one of the world's most, you know, blah, 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 um, collection of books. Um, I've been searching uh, high and low for this one book. I've never been able to open it or read it. Uh, it's A, B, and C. I forgot what the name of the book was. Do you mind if I borrow it? And he's asking for somebody that hates him, okay? Yeah. This surprised his rival, but it also flattered his rival because one is like, okay, ah. Huh. You actually understand the most the, the crown jewel of my collection and the, my, my baby. Two, you probably appreciate how, how precious this is and important this is. So it's, it's something if I did lend to you, you would treat it like with kids' gloves. And, and, and you know, and, 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 and three, we have a shared interest. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then four, this is what's the most important part. I could actually do something for you. Huh. Okay. Well, guess what? You might owe me something in the future, all right? I, I might be good with that. And it's a favor that I can grant without necessarily too much skin off my back. So there are some, it's what I call techniques or tactics asking for a good favor. You want to ask for something that the other person can actually do for you without something that requires too much effort for them, but something that they understand would be very important to you or would have a big impact for you. So what happens after the favor is granted is that forever, whoever granted you that favor, they are forever invested in you, in your outcome, in your success, and whatever that favor was done for you to drive towards whatever objective you were trying to meet. And the research shows that people that have done favors for you in the past are the ones that are the most likely to do more favors for you in the future because now you are a vested interest in their circle of life, consideration, influence, whatever it might be, you are now part of that set, and you will be forever etched in that. So one of the best ways to get close to somebody and build rapport is not to do something for them. It's to ask something from them. Yes, and I'd like to say something to the listener right now. It says, uh, page 107, doing personal favors for someone makes us like them more. Listener, would you do me a favor and leave me a five-star iTunes review? It just needs to be two sentences. Just say, the host isn't that bright, but his guests are phenomenal. And then say, by the way, I'm a very ridiculously good-looking person. Yeah, just, just do that for me. See, see what I'm doing there soon? I love it. Yeah, you I'll, know, I'll cut this part out, right? No, yeah. no, no, you shouldn't because <laughs> – you're exactly deploying what I'm talking about, which is yes. the more you ask of your listeners and the more they involve and engage, and if they write a sincere review, which I'm sure they will, right? And if they're listening, they're more than likely, you know, somebody who cares about what's being said and, and obviously has some affinity to your program, the more likely they're going to support the program going forward because they now have a vested interest. It's not a passing interest anymore. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that, send me a message. And then, if you could, send me a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. 
Uh, now that's going to be a little more involved, but uh, two, bo- two bottles you got to you got to have to share one with me, right? <laughs> right, right. Yes. Well, actually, uh, soon, uh, starting with this episode, all guests on the Marketing Book Podcast will be receiving Birkin bags. <laughs> now they're they're counterfeit, but you know. I'm making an effort here, so you are. You're making it well. No, the, yeah, exactly. You're making an effort. That's great, but it requires them to make an effort. And here's the key. The key message in all this is, you know, don't want to make everything seamless, frictionless, or easy. Sometimes you just want to think about how do you pull your consumers, your customers, in more. How do you engage them more in ways that actually is going to create more joy, more more of those happy chemicals for them. And that's what I need you guys to think about as, as you're doing your design of experiences or your marketing programs or you're building your brand. Think about ways that you're actually demanding more of your customers in ways that actually will create more happy chemicals for them. So is there – let's pull, pull out one just one example from that section of a company that adds this kind of rapport-building friction. Sure. I mean, here's a couple of examples of companies that actually require more of you than maybe you anticipated. You know – Ikea. <laughs> In so many ways, oh. Ikea requires so much engagement. First and foremost, if you're going to go visit Ikea, it's not like we're going to 7-Eleven or we're going to go to Rite Aid or, or, or CVS and pick up something and then you know pay for it and then get out of there, right? It never happens that way. <laughs> it is an event. You basically plan the whole afternoon to be in Ikea. You bring mm-hmm. the whole family, right? And it's like an amusement park. You're given a map when you come in, okay? And then you're, you're encouraged to meander. You may have gone there for some place, but you end up with bed sheets, you know, a bunch of a frame, a picture frame, a bunch of you, – you sit, you sit down for the Swedish meatballs, and at the end, you got to get the hot dog and the, and the cinnamon roll. It's an event, right? So the whole experience of going to the IKEA is very involving, and it's done on purpose. But that type of friction – requiring more time and energy of your customers, in some ways, they enjoy it because they realize it's a destination and it's, you know, instead of doing miniature golf today, we're going to take the family, we're going to go to Ikea, we're going to have twice as much fun as going to miniature golf, right? So, you know, it's, and then you think about the other thing. Ikea makes you make your own furniture and assemble it, right? <laughs> it's a pain in the behind. You know, how many hours it took us to build this little cabinet with all the shelves? Anything that requires multiple shelves, Douglas, oh, it's a warning, right? Yeah. But all the research shows that when people actually put in their own blood, sweat, and tears and effort into building or making something, at the end of it, they place almost twice the value than if it was just done for them. And they're less willing to sell it at a cheaper price or give it away because of the effort they put behind it. They've actually created more value by making their customers put in energy, time, and effort versus being shipped ready-made. Yes. So that's the rapport. Let's go to A of embrace, and that's assurance. And this was really interesting because it seems like it's even more heightened with the you know, the COVID lockdown and all that sort of thing going on. And of course, when I read the chapter, I'm like, oh, that's what they've been doing to me. I, <laughs> I didn't realize it. But talk about how adding friction can build trust. Yeah. Well, you know, this idea that sometimes inconveniences are value add, okay? So back in the 80s, uh, most people, you know, they're, I, I don't know how old you are, Douglas. You sound very young, but okay, I'm I'm in my fifties. Okay, so I remember the age. Thank you. Okay? <laughs> I remember. 
remember the 80s. And you could go to any local drugstore and basically buy a bottle of Tylenol. But before you purchase the bottle of Tylenol, you could actually pop it open and pick up the pills, examine them. You could even put one in your mouth and no one would even know. You could sample it basically for free in the store and then close the cap back on and put the bottle back on the shelf. That's how easy access the bottles were. Well, um, unfortunately, because it was so easy access, somebody decided to take some of those pills, lace them with cyanide, and you had a bunch of people die from that. Mm. And that required Tylenol to pull all of their product off all the shelves across the world. Okay? And then they basically, you know, had to obviously had a PR mass and had to take care of that. But then they had to really rethink the product. And now if you go to a CVS or Rite Aid or, you know, Walgreens, you would be surprised to find anything but maybe four layers of inconvenience before you could actually get to a pill. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the child-resistant cap. You're going to have shrink wrap on top of the cap in the bottle. You're going to have the um, cardboard box. And then you're going to shrink wrap around the cardboard box. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... There's no way you'll ever be able to touch the product before you ever, you pay for it and leave the store. And I want every bit of that if I'm buying that product. Absolutely. Tamper resistant, child resistant, um, you know, sealed, all that. You want all of that. And that's inconvenient. But man, it's like those double email verifications. There are times when a little bit of pause will give people the assurance they need to continue. It's kind of like what TurboTax does, right? TurboTax actually has your taxes figured out the minute you press go. But they will show a bar that says, hey, we are processing everything for you. And, you know, you know, and you see this bar keep coming and growing and growing until it hits 100%. And, and then you feel like, okay, people have double-checked this. The software program has run every iteration. You know, there's yeah. no way they've made a mistake because I watched that bar grow from 10% to 90%, then to 100%. Oh, I feel better, right? Yeah, they were checking the latest tax legislation for that day. <laughs> for that exact – for that 10 seconds or that three seconds you were waiting. Exactly. But that type of little bit of uh, call it play creates incredible assurance for you. And, and so, yeah, there are times when hitting the pause button and making people wait a little or actually asking them to do a few more steps give people an added sense of something's being done the right way. Sometimes you already know. It's like you know going in and, and doing some medical things. Sometimes you fill out the form two or three times, but they're double-checking, triple-checking to make sure that, hey, there's going to be no cracks. Nothing's going to fall through those gaps as it comes to your health. Yes, the other one that comes to mind that I just like is when every single time I go to the bank website, they text me. They will not let me in there unless they text to make sure that I've got uh, – I can also put in the number that's on my phone. Well, uh, when you've got $530 like you do, Douglas, that's a big deal, right? I mean, come on. It's 532 but yeah. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if we go and we if we we go hawk those uh, those those uh, bottles of wine that you're asking for, I think yes. you might be able to. Well, no, actually, I'm rolling in dough because I haven't paid for a car in 20 years. So, there, there you uh, but go. I, <laughs> but I have a very expensive uh, family, so yeah, that's the assurance, and then the competence. Competence is the C of embrace. Why are so many people eager to climb Mount Everest rather than to have a helicopter drop them off at the top to take a selfie? <sighs> 
it's the same reason why look if if you've ever gotten promoted or or, or or been given something that you didn't feel prepared for you will suffer from something called imposter syndrome mm-hmm. you, you know that right yeah and the only way to get over imposter syndrome is to put in the hours put in the time and the same thing is true with respect to climbing Mount Everest, if if everyone knew that ninety nine percent of the people could get there by just you know popping on a helicopter, and then guess what? The ability to say I climb Mount Everest, not the ability, the 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 significance or the coolness of saying I climbed Mount Everest would sh- pretty much go to zero. <laughs> and I'll be honest, in some ways, it's not as 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 illustrious as it used to be because all the sh- you know they have all these sharpers sharpas that are basically you know climbing and carrying all your equipment for you versus in the early days, no people had it. It was self sufficient, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean that's why because people recognize both. Outside people, you know, we're talking about the serotonin, right? But also internally, you recognize, did I actually earn my seat at the table? And if I haven't, and I've been somehow sh- I short-circuited or did it through family influence or whatever it might be, you know, you're always kind of looking over your shoulders like, oh, well, th- th- you know, th- did I actually, did I really actually put in the time required, the 10,000 hours? But when you have put in, man, the satisfaction you get from mastering your craft and then being good at your craft and then having impact based on your craft is tenfold. Mm. That's why it's so satisfying to me personally, knowing that I've read all these books. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I, I probably, you know, I, I, I think most authors are interviewed by people who haven't, but it's just like, not to take anything away from the other podcasters, but it's just like, it gives me such a feeling of having climbed a, a mountain. And of course, I learn so much. And then the real reason I do this is because occasionally I'll hear from listeners who say, hey, man. Thanks for doing that podcast. <laughs> You'd be amazed at how uh, how that sustains me for another 400 episodes. But you say the bigger the investment people put into getting something, the more they'll want to hold on to it. What Pull out one of the examples of a business that is making people work at their competence. Well, I think, okay, so this is it's a little bit about competence, but it's more about um, – the effort required, okay, to actually be a good spouse. <laughs> Think about it this way, right? Well, I better write this down. Yeah. <laughs> but, but okay, there's Tinder. There's all these new ones that I didn't even know about, right? And if if you want instant gratification, you do a swap right, swap left. You you know, and the other person does too. And eventually, hopefully, you get a match within the right vicinity, and boom. But how gratifying is that versus hey? What is required to actually be involved in a relationship? And what's interesting is if you look at eHarmony, they have a questionnaire that's like 160 questions. Now, you might think, oh, there's a lot of friction in filling out 160 questions. It's more than that. Some of these questions are open-ended, and they make you have to sit there and seriously consider, how do I answer this thoughtful, philosophical question that I actually might actually get on a, a third or fourth date, or that might show up Unfortunately, after I've been married and I've never encountered a situation and all of a sudden we're having to deal with it for the first time, we realize we're not even on the same page. Why am I married to this person, right? That's a, that happens. <laughs> I, I hear sometimes. that a lot, yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? So what, e, you know, what eHarmony is actually forcing you to do is actually be more competent about who you are and what you're looking for. That's what the 160 questions are. Yes, mm-hmm. it's requiring a lot of time and effort and energy, but it's what it's actually making you be better at is dating, 
Okay? Like, because part of it is, one of the hardest things we have is this idea of telling truths, not to other people, to ourselves. You know, the, per- the, the, the person we lie most to, you know, is ourselves. It's not lying to other people. We like to believe we live in a certain rosy-colored world and see the world in our own way. And, and oftentimes, those questions are very self-reflective and require this idea of being able to answer it honestly. And, and because the person that they're going to match you up with is also, you know, I would say of the 160 questions, do they all, let's say there's an AI program, do they look at all 160 and, and match them the same way? I don't know. Probably not. But it doesn't matter because what the 160 does is it does two things. It One, it pretty much screens out anyone who's not serious about dating. Yes. And two, it forces those who continue and decide they're serious about dating to get serious about being competent to date because it's asking you to think about hard questions that maybe it was a couple of those movies where it was Robin Williams was the priest and he was interviewing, I was it Mandy Moore and some other, I can't remember, but remember they had to go through this uh, process. I think the Catholic church does it where they basically ask a bunch of questions, right? And mainly because they don't want you being married for three years, not having asked those questions. And then, then some life circumstance happens and you recognize, oh my God, me and my partner don't even see the same when it comes to crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And so that's what eHarmony is actually doing, is actually forcing you to be more competent with dating. Yes. So let's go to the last one, engagement, make them laugh, make them cry, which is you know what I try to do on this show. <laughs> Not sure about the laughing, but the, they're definitely tearing up. Yeah. So you say if you want to engage people, you need them to be invested, and you do that by adding friction that must be resolved. Talk about methods of engagement. Talk about rules of engagement. Well, you know, I, I think the key here is when you want to engage people, you want to make them part of the story part mm-hmm. of the journey, right? And you want them to feel like they're actually one of the characters in the brand. It's not just, hey, it's a transactional situation with the brand. Uh, here's a good example of, of sort of this idea of living the brand promise of exploration, of taking risk, of, of uh, striving for new heights. Um, one of the brands I worked on when I was over at VF, um, VF is a large apparel company for those who don't know. They own 30 brands. That includes Timberland, Wrangler, Nautica, Seven for Mankind back then, Supreme now, I guess, and and obviously one of the crown jewels of the portfolio is the North Face. Mm-hmm. And the North Face in Korea, they understood who their customers were. So they actually designed a store that would really create full engagement. So what happens is, once they get a single customer in the store, the store staff just secretly disappear. They flip a switch. All of a sudden, the doors close on the store itself, and the middle of the store floor, the, the, the floor, okay, opens up in the very middle, okay? And usually, you're on one or two sides of, 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 of the floor, and on that wall to the very far side are those knobs that you have for, like, rock climbing, okay? And basically, as the floor is opening up underneath you, it drops down about 
you know, 15 feet onto, let's call it a, a, a pad, right? But it's scary. You don't want to just, just fall off the, the, the floor and, and fall on the pad. So right, and floor. soon you mentioned this was in Korea, and it was hard for me not to think of Squid Game when I was it, reading it, It's very Squid Game-y, right? It's very Korean culture right? It's kind of the bravado that, that comes with uh, the Korean culture, right? So basically, you see these people. You go online, watch the North Face, a Korean store, you know, um, and, and just type that in. You'll, you'll see these videos. It's great. People obviously, you know, are forced to the uh, far end and they start grabbing onto the knobbies and they hang on there as the floor disappears from them. Then a screen pops down and says, you have 30 seconds, all right, to grab the coat that is now in front of you. And then this coat comes down from the very ceiling, okay? And it's one of their $1,000 or $2,000 coats, the most, like one of those most beautiful coats, Okay. And you're give, and then all of a sudden the countdown starts going thirty, twenty nine, and basically people have to use the knobs, the, the rock climbing knobs, to climb up to the very top, in order to have a chance to go and leap to the middle of the store to grab the jacket and fall down onto the pad. And it's an incredible experience, and there is a reason why the North Face prices are double anywhere else in the world because they're in such high demand and they understand the psyche of their consumers and it just adds to this idea that we yeah we keep them engaged we keep them guessing we keep them on their toes and because of that they love us uh, yes the same, the same example with the nike remember the whole fanatics right they're running around with their phones doing augmented and virtual reality and trying to get numbers and trying to yeah so it is all about how do you keep your customers engaged. Now, the one story I have to tell is about a friend of mine who is a graduate of the Naval Academy. He was a naval aviator. He now works for a Fortune 500 company. But I'm not going to say his name, and I'm not going to say the company <laughs> to protect them both. But there's a bar where we live here in Norfolk, Virginia, called Jack Brown's. And there are some other Jack Brown's. It was started up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and... There are some in, in different cities. And <clears throat> it's a beer and burger joint. And what they have is this program where when you drink, they have a lot of beer there. When you drink a beer, you write down on a card that they keep there for you what beer it was and what date you drank it. So when you get to 100 beers, you get like a patch, okay? And you're called a, I don't know, whatever it is. It's 100 notches. And then each time he drank a hundred more beers, he got, he worked his way up to the point where he's one of the few people that's called a saint, where he's had a thousand beers. <laughs> now he didn't drink them all in one weekend, like like a lot of his Naval Academy grads possibly could. But it's just such a phenomenal example of the engagement principle. And last weekend, he and I flew to Cincinnati because he's a Cincinnati Bengals season ticket holder. We get to Cincinnati and he puts on this shirt that has all the patches and it shows that he's a, you know, a saint. And he says, "Let's go." And I said, "What are you talking about? Where are we going?" Cuz there's a Jack Browns in Cincinnati. We're going there right now. <laughs> he wow. walks in with this shirt on and he had the respect immediately of all the alcoholics in that bar. So, no. <laughs> You know, that probably speaks more to competence than engagement. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, he's very talented. Yes. He's, uh, and he's very goal oriented, but it was just he's so engaged. 
and uh, it's it's just amazing. So, but and enough. He's, lo- of- he's a loyal, loyal drinker, isn't he? Yes, yes. And I'm sure he doesn't want to, of course. But uh, you know, he he's all about goals. He's very goal oriented. So, hence Love all it. the success in his life. So, at any rate, well, listen. Let me just uh, close with uh, one question from page. Let's see, page one fifty six, and ask. Let me let me quote where you say. Over the last couple of decades, customer experience has made it to the forefront of business priorities, which makes it all the more incredible how many poor experiences there still are out there. And then you go on to write that <clears throat> and many businesses have been inadvertently making their offering bland in their efforts to improve the experience. They've solely focused on giving the customer less friction, creating experiences that don't engage people's minds or make them feel anything. So as we wrap up, tell us how you can give customers more by adding a dose of friction. Let me just end that uh, cautionary note on that tale by saying this. If the way you... Okay, so there's an old marketing adage, how you acquire your customer is how you keep them. So if you do it through primarily promotion... You're probably going to have to keep promoting in order to keep them. And if you do it by primarily creating the most frictionless mousetrap out there, then guess what? They're going to be loyal to the next frictionless mousetrap. And so they're just going to look for somebody else that has just made it even easier than you've made it. Mm -hmm. And so if that's your, call it, uh, cycle of doom is just to be the most frictionless. Yeah, it's like live by the sword, die by the sword. Exactly. I mean, if that's the only way that you create loyalty, then trust me, there are a lot of startups out there that are being funded to be even, let's say, easier than you are, whatever mousetrap you've created. Mm -hmm. And I always say this, and I said this in my first book, and I might have said it on your previous podcast, it isn't necessarily the fastest or the biggest or the most technologically gifted or the most frictionless mousetrap that gets the mice. It's the one with the stinkiest cheese. (laughs) So your goal is to create stinky cheese. Part of that is having great story, but part of that is making it really stinky and fragrant in a way where the mice have to use their nose to find you. And it's, there's a reward for actually going the extra mile to go through the crevices to find the best cheese in the world. And once they get there, they not only before getting there, they have all the dopamine in the world. But when they get there, they have the, the, the reward and the serotonin for actually finding that mice. You know, and then, and then ideally, you're going to bring your friend from Virginia to Cincinnati. And so you're going to have some oxytocin with your other mice. <laughs> mice friends as you celebrate this stinky cheese, right? And then the adrenaline that's created by all that engagement. So your goal is to make not only the cheese stinky, but not necessarily the easiest cheese to get. Because once you eat into that cheese, the effort, the story, the energy to get to that cheese is part of the satisfaction of that first bite. Well said. And in case anybody needed one more acronym. It's more. And it was brilliant because people think of experience design as you know overwhelming and, and really, really difficult. And you all put it into just four sections, which is one, map the journey. And you go into great detail about how to do that. Like map the journey, you know, like how, how do people f- become aware of us? What, what happens when they decide to buy? 
what's it like while they're a customer? Uh, what about post use? You know, things like that. And you can put it all up on a whiteboard. That's M. O is own the pivotal moments. And so this is where you don't necessarily focus on every moment, just the important ones. And again, Soon and Dave show you how to find just the few to, to focus on. And then R, remove the pain. Again, as, as, as Soon has said several times, you, you do need to remove the bad pain, the bad friction. There's probably more that your customers are enduring <laughs> than you want to admit. But then E is embrace the good friction. And that's really where the magic is and is outlined in this in this book. So soon, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would think of it as this way, in 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 in, in, in just a, a way to simply practice the idea of good friction, okay, and take it home on a very personal level. Find somebody that you respect. Find somebody that you know that you want to get closer to and ask a favor of them. Don't just do something for them. Think of a good favor to ask of somebody that you want to get closer to. If you can overcome that challenge, then you'll understand the benefits of good friction and you'll be able to break the paradigm that we all have, which is, oh my God, I got to do things by making it easier for those who I want. Mm-hmm. Well, how about making it harder for the people <laughs> that you actually want in your life? And so, here's the situation. You want to get close to somebody? Ask something of them. Yes. And to the listener, I should say, if you don't know how to do an iTunes review, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com. A, <laughs> I love you. You're great. <laughs> there's an article that'll tell you exactly what to do. Well, let's jump ahead. Are there are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you're looking forward to seeing come out or read? Oh, I'll, I'll give a, pl- a couple of plugs. Um, I always love Adam Grant. He was great. He supported um, this book here and he supported my previous book. And, you know, I think this idea of... Um, not take everything at face value and thinking again, I think is a really a wonderful way to look at the world. And, you know, I wrote a, re- I'm, I'm writing a re- uh, article that's going to come out very soon about Salesforce and how they're a company that's always this idea of the beginner's mindset, right? And, and so, um, and that's sort of this idea of think again is just how do you look at the world from a fresh perspective? And if you're a company that always thinks you're beginning, then guess what? You know, the, the, the you're probably, there's no end in sight to where you might go. Mm, very true. Yeah. Well, good. Any others? Yeah, I've got a. Hey, if you haven't read a book from Dave Burr's beyond the ones that he wrote with me and was un- unfortunately unduly influenced by me, right? And, and <laughs> uh, he's got some great books out there about. I've I've seen Dave the keynotes on creativity and how the mind works and a lot of the happy chemicals was actually through Dave's research but you know how to get the great ideas explores the idea of creativity even further and talks about the idea of happy chemicals and so I would highly recommend that one another good friend of mine Chip Heath gets this idea of how do you actually use numbers in a way that actually tells stories and provides significance because we're we're in a very numbers and data driven um, a planet right now. And actually, how do you use that to your advantage to to actually get what you want to be a good salesperson to sell more? And so he talks a lot about this. And the last one, a good friend of mine, Ray Wong, who I have incredible respect for. He's the um, 
founder of Constellation Research, one of the best analysts firms in the world. He's one of the best analysts. He's always on uh, TV, whatnot. And, and, but he has a book called Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And it's really about this idea of the digital giants and how um, there is obviously the, the, you know, the development of all these incredible companies that basically are going to do everything for you at some point, right? And, mm-hmm. and forget the idea of countries. There's probably going to be this idea of, of, of companies that are, that are going to take over the, the role of countries, okay? Mm-hmm. And instead of asking what citizen are you of from a country, they're going to ask him what citizen are you from a corporation point of view, okay? But he talks about how do you operate inside that type of world and what is one of the essential sort of ingredients or elements to be relevant in a world that is controlled by digital giants. And I, I think that's a very important reading for people who are thinking about how to uh, sort of map out the next 10 to 20 years. Interesting. So the other one you mentioned was, uh, let's see, everybody wants to rule the world, surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. I actually, you know what? I think that's been mentioned on the show uh, in the past. And Chip Heath, his book is Making Numbers Count, The Art and Science of Communicating Numbers. And I actually wrote to him a while back, inviting him on the Marketing Book Podcast, but now that I know somebody who knows him, you know, maybe you could put in a good word. And also, I happen to know that he has an engineering degree uh, as an undergrad. There you so, go. <laughs> and he has a PhD from Stanford, so by law, he's required to come on this podcast. So uh, maybe when this publishes, you could share it with him and say, hey, you know, help this guy out. So, <laughs> At any rate. Well, listen, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. Okay, it's just not about leaving me an iTunes review. If you don't want to do that, I, I can understand. What I do want you to do is reach out to Soon and congratulate him on this book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast a second time. You know, I can't believe some of these authors actually come back a second time after being exposed to such really stupid jokes. But send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or go to his website. But the list the every week guests, past guests, tell me, hey, I love hearing from your from your listeners. And even if it's uh, if you want to share this interview or share some article that uh, soon has written, tag him in it. Just let him know that you heard him on the marketing book podcast because let's hope this isn't the last book that they write. And with any luck We'll get soon back on the show for a third time, which will get him into the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club, which I don't know if you know this soon, but you will then be entitled to discount coupons at any Burlingame, California area Taco Bell. So, you know. Hey, as long as I can hang out with you in the sink, I'm there. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, also, if you're the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote. Page 165, if there's one thing we hope you get out of this book, it's that all friction is not created equal. There's bad friction, which should definitely be eliminated, and there's good friction, which should be protected like the rarest of gemstones. The book is friction, adding value by making people work for it. The authors are Soon Yu and Dave Burrs. Soon, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas, and I am going to make sure I give you a a number of five-star ratings, man. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 